You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, we are igniting the imagination of leaders through purposeful, life-giving conversations about the five muscles the body of Christ must strengthen to be fit, agile, and ready for God's now. For more information about the five muscles, visit tmf-fdn.org and click Leadership Ministry. Welcome back to Igniting Imagination. I'm Lisa Greenwood, and joining me for our final episode this season are my colleagues, Scott Sharp and Blair Thompson-White. Welcome back, you two. Hi, Lisa. Hello. This is our final episode this season about the five adaptive muscles the body of Christ must strengthen to be fit, agile, and ready for God's now. And the fifth muscle is expanding imagination. I'll start by saying that we've been saving this conversation with Mandy McDowell, who is the pastor at Los Angeles First United Methodist Church, for months and months, waiting for just the right time to release it. And we're releasing it now because as we emerge from COVID-19, we're experiencing congregations moving away from the reactive decision-making that has monopolized the past two years and moving towards more discernment especially related to their building use. So how is God inviting us to use our space to benefit our neighbors and our community? It's a different question, and it is occupying our thinking and our hearts. Mandy tells us the story of Los Angeles first, and it is such a great example of a long-established downtown congregation who have not allowed themselves to be locked into what already exists, but have expanded their imagination over and over again, and most notably related to their building. It's worth noting, though, that as Mandy tells the story of the church's history, you will hear discerning purpose all throughout. So again, when these muscles are exercised together, we really see thriving. So let me stop there and ask, Blair, Scott, what else should our listeners be listening for in the conversation with Mandy. Lisa, I'm so glad that you mentioned her grasp of that church's history because it seems like knowing that history allows for her to stand in the values that they've known so well. And so she walks this amazing line and, and holds intention this beautifully, this the notion between imagination and tradition and what can be and what yeah. has been. And I really found that inspiring in that conversation with her. Yeah, and just to pull on those values a little bit, I mean, that really is is core to the whole history, is, is those values have remained. And it reminds me of something I think Jim Collins has said, that, that core values are timeless and they do not change, but practices and strategies should be changing all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so demonstrated in this story. I mean, I just, with every discernment along the way, uh, that's it's really quite shocking. I think listeners will go, really? They they did that to the building? They made that decision? And right. it's, it's because their values were driving them, not the nostalgia, not the, this is how we've done it, but the values. And if we hold on to values, then yeah, we can, we're okay with with things changing, with practices changing and strategies changing. Yeah, and Blair, I think the other thing about that is that she really names that if we discern well, we can make decisions before we're in crisis. Mm -hmm. Right, that sounds really good to me. So let me give a brief bio for Mandy. 
So the Reverend Mandy McDowell grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee and attended Oglethorpe University in Atlanta, Georgia. She attended Princeton Theological Seminary for her Master of Divinity and is currently pursuing doctoral work at Candler School of Theology. Mandy has served congregations in Atlanta, Laguna Beach, and in 2017 accepted the appointment to Los Angeles First with one catch, and you'll hear about it in the interview. Here it is. The church bulldozed their building in 2001. Seriously, just wait for it. (laughs) Mandy has a black belt in Taekwondo. She is an aspiring musician, still has a passion for sweet tea, and is the proud mother of three children. Let's listen to Blair's interview with Mandy. So Mandy, thank you so much for joining us in this conversation today. And I want to begin by telling the story of when I first met you, which was in January of 2020. So that was, as we said, the before times, uh, January 2020. And I was in LA with a group of clergy and we were there on a learning journey together. Uh, The Texas Methodist Foundation was leading all of us on. And so uh, I remember this so vividly that we were in the hotel lobby. It was like day one, we've got our agenda. And uh, our, our leaders just say, okay, everybody, we're going to meet at LA first. And here's the address and jump into your Ubers and we'll see you, see you there. And I, I, there probably, Mandy, there was probably a pre-reading that I was supposed to do, but I didn't do it and had no idea what we were going to go and experience. And I'll, I'll share that the clergy and my Uber didn't know either. And so we just headed to LA first and the driver you know, we get there and he says, okay, well, we're here and there's no, there's no building. There's no, it's a parking lot. And we said, are you sure this is the address? And we were the first to arrive, of course. And he says, yeah, this is it. This is the address you gave us. And okay. So we got out and we're standing in this parking lot and we think, well, maybe the church is a block over. Like, you know, maybe this is their parking lot, but maybe the church is down the street a little bit. And so then we we noticed there's a sign and one of our well, colleagues she goes she goes no no the sign says first methodist or and so we were just totally perplexed and then like out of the <laughs> sounds like a scene from a movie then you come around the corner from I, nowhere <laughs> from in my yeah. perspective and you're like hey are you all the group from TMF we're like yeah we had and so that was my first introduction to you and to LA first because certainly as our expectation was a big downtown, beautiful church building, proud Methodist heritage kind of thing. And that is that is that was not our experience. So there's my introduction, Mandy. So tell us about LA First and how it ended up being our experience of a parking lot. It's such a great introduction because I think the first time I knew about the church was similar in the sense I was just driving down Olympic Boulevard and looked over and saw a billboard with a Methodist logo on it. And it said Los Angeles first. And I was like, cool, where? And then, you know, just kept going. I learned later uh, what the whole history was. So LA first, I could bore your listeners for a full hour on the entire history of this church because it is really rich and really interesting. I'll do my best to do it quickly. But in 1853, this pastor named Adam Bland was sent from Missouri. This is the quote evangelize the rowdy and incorrigible Southland. I have put that slogan on shirts. Uh, I think it's the best. It's on our website. Like, yeah, that's what we are. We're the rowdy and incorrigible Southland. Uh, So Adam Bland, you know, and his wife came and they established a presence at the El Dorado Saloon, 
where they started holding prayer meetings and Bible studies. That saloon is still there. It's in La Plaza, which is the oldest part of Los Angeles. So, Buddy did a good job of his wife started a school nearby. He started, you know, working with local people, figuring out what the needs of the community were. The church grew. They were eventually able to build a building in roughly 1870. Uh, I'm not really sure when that building was built, but it was a beautiful old, like, wooden church, gorgeous steeple, you know, not huge, but pretty significant for the time. And LA was a Fair to say hot mess for a very long time. Racially not well integrated at all. Lots of crime. There were only 8,000 people in the city. And then between 1850 and 1870, it grew exponentially. And when that kind of growth happens, you have, you know, people who have immigrated in from different places, because everybody at the time was an immigrant, competing with each other for land, for jobs. Um, There were lots of differing, you know, value structures. And so, it wasn't going well. It was a really tumultuous place and time. And LA First was originally founded as Fort Street Methodist Episcopal. So, Fort Street is the name of what is now Broadway. And they established their church there. They built a building that says furnished rooms. Uh, so they have established into their DNA that housing is a critical issue for people. That church grew and they eventually bought another piece of property on Hill Street and built a stunning building. Just gorgeous. It was like a rotunda style beautiful, huge choir loft. The sanctuary is beautiful. The presence was significant. It was gorgeous. And within 20 years, they outgrew that. So, the Ladies Auxiliary, who would now be known as the United Methodist Women, started raising money, and you cannot stop the United Methodist Women. You can't. You can try, but you won't. Uh, They raised a million dollars, which at the time was the most expensive building that had ever been built in L.A. They built a church the size of a quarter of a city block on 8th and Hope. It is massive and significant. They held a week of consecration services for that sanctuary. You can imagine, you're all thinking it, like, was there a service just for the organ? Of course there was. It was, it was a whole spectacle. (laughs) But as time went on in all of our major cities in America, when the car happened, uh, everybody emptied out of the downtown areas. And so everybody fled to the suburbs, which of course that was at the time where racial tensions were at a peak yet again. Downtown Los Angeles, like every downtown, was not doing well. They also shut down the trolley systems, which were a major way for people to navigate the city. So now you're left with this like empty cavernous building that is so big and impossible to maintain with a you know fraction of the people who used to attend there. So the church had to have its literal come to Jesus question for one another, which is, can we afford to stay here? That building, they'd only been there for, you know, 50 years. And they had done amazing things with their space. They had started the first MCC church in the city, met at, um, at the time it was called, they had to change names when they moved from Fort Street. They became First United Methodist Church of Los Angeles, I believe was how they were known. And then, of course, there was the merger with the EUB in the 60s. So, that shifted everything. So, they hosted the first MCC congregation. They were open to, to being open and affirming for LGBTQ people at the time. They hosted a huge memorial service the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated. They also held uh, different congregations, Filipino congregations. They had a really significant ministry with the Filipino community, Korean congregations. So, there were multi-ethnic languages happening in the building. And again, it 
demonstrates what's in the DNA, which is an openness to answering the question that people have, which is, you know, will my basic needs be met? And are there people here like me? Will I be welcomed? Because that's the first barrier for entry to understanding how God loves you. Um, The way the church behaves is the way people perceive that God behaves. And there's good stuff in this church's DNA. So, all it is to say, by 1981, they had finally come to their reckoning that they needed to get rid of the building. They sold it. They bought this piece of property in the middle of nowhere in downtown. There was nothing there. So, it's risky and cheap. And on that site was an old office building that had essentially been abandoned. They repurposed it. They, you know, threw up some stained glass that's honestly really cool. They made the bottom floor of the sanctuary. It was not climate controlled. They rented out space in that building. Uh, You may have heard of Asian Americans Advancing Justice. Their founder, uh, Stuart Kuo, is a member of the church, and he rented one of the first office spaces there. Um, Got a grant from the Urban Foundation, which was started at the same time to start that nonprofit. So they, again, did good things with their building. But eventually that building, like the elevator was too expensive to repair. The building itself was already old. And so they were in the same position with fewer people and less resources. And they'd done good work with their money. They'd invested it. They bought this land. You know, that's land always has value. But they came to another position around the turn of the century in 99, 2000, that they couldn't keep that building either. And... Through a lot of prayer and supplication and a lot of asking forgiveness instead of permission, the pastor at the time tore the building down with the intention to raise money to build a church. And in the meantime, he had created something called the 1010 Development Corporation, which had built successfully, they're still there, two low-income housing projects, one for seniors called Via Flores and one for families called Hope Village. So he had a track record for being able to raise and execute pretty significant building plans. So when he tore the church down, people were like, okay, it's fine. We're going to raise $6 million. We'll build ourselves a church. We'll carry on. And that didn't happen. And frankly, had it happened before the market crashed, who knows? They, they would have lost a lot of money. Um, it's probably good that they didn't get into that construction project in the front end. In the meantime, the Staples Center opened. It opened in, I think, 99 or at least 2000, I think. So around the same time that the building was coming down, this whole new part of downtown is being explored for development and entertainment purposes. The pastor who had torn down the building, his name is Darrell Weiss, he had to retire. He turned 72. New pastor Sandy Richards came in and she was the one who thought to monetize the parking lot. So they'd paved it just to like, you know, make sure it wasn't a big open pit in the middle of the city because we've all seen Parks and Rec and know how that turns out. They paved it. Sandy Richards was the one who monetized it. And God bless Sandy Richards. Sandy and Dan Lewis, the other pastor who was before me, took such good care of this congregation who had been meeting in the multi-purpose room of the senior housing facility, which is where I emerged when I first met Blair, <laughs> was in that multi-purpose room. But that room didn't generate a lot of life. It kept everybody together and going, but it didn't grow. And so the church was on the verge of closing. Bishop Carcano said it to close in 2016. They were considered dormant and didn't have a pastor. And that was the year that she moved to Cal Nevada. And then we Bishop Pegia came and I went to him and said, I have an idea of what I'd like to do for ministry. And he was like, have I got a church for you? So I was appointed in 2017 and my first Sunday we took everything from the multi-purpose room mid-service in communion and took it up and took it outdoors. And we have not, other than a couple of Sundays for rain purposes, we haven't gone back in since. So that's how we got to the parking lot. <laughs> 
I mean, there are just so many parts of that story, Mandy, that I just love. And I hear so much courage throughout. And also, you know, there's so many different leaders that come in, but the DNA of the church remains. And it just, and the things I heard you say, which are so striking uh, about the inclusivity of the congregation, the idea of of neighboring and, and not only that, but housing. And so I just wonder how now that you've been there for several years, you've been meeting on the parking lot, how is that DNA showing up now? Like, what does that look like as you all vision for, for the future of LA First? So I think what what most churches and pastors in particular don't realize, you know, there there are lots of our colleagues who have gone on to be like, I'm a public theologian. Um, and those are usually people who get book deals. I'm like, yeah, good for you. Um, but every pastor is a public theologian and every church expresses public theology. It's just that we don't think to name it. And just like when you're making a budget and you take a look at it and say, do these numbers reflect our values? You get a chance to say yes or no. And if not, how do you adjust? And it's because, you know, I've been serving an appointed ministry since 2003, which is a zillion years. We inherited a model that had been created for us with good intention. And, you know, our grandparents who built all those churches in the 1950s uh, with great hope of like every neighborhood needs a church. Everyone needs a place to get to know about Jesus. Everyone needs people who are going to care for them in the course of their life and do so in a way that, you know, demonstrates Christian love. While that was true for around 20 to 30 years, we have inherited something where that model isn't working. And the hardest thing for us to realize is that the model that we grew up in and love that cultivated me and probably you into ministry is a model that we can't pass down. So, LA First is really unique in their adaptability. Most churches are not that adaptable, but also we're all adaptable when we have to be. And for me to tell the story without aligning it with my own personal story is is false. I went to this church because I'd gone through my own, I moved to, to Laguna Beach from Atlanta with my husband and our three kids and an old beagle and God bless him. Uh, and we got here and a year later, my husband left me. And I was trying to reevaluate my own life, my own understanding of myself as a person, an individual, what it meant to be a pastor, what it meant to be a mom. My organization, my time changed. And frankly, I had to get really, really clear on what my values were because it's just me. It's just me. And so when any person or institution or organization or church gets to the place where you're like, all right, guys, we have to make a decision and we have to make it because if we don't, it's going to be made for us. And we're not going to like the outcome. And I think LA First has been in that position a number of times. And because of that, that adaptability is one of their most notable qualities. They're really courageous. They're, uh, they're not afraid to try not just new things, but like weird things, crazy things. Who wants to sit in a parking lot for church? That is not pleasant, but it's worked for us. So I think every congregation has the capacity to adapt. It's just a matter of when you decide to do it. Do you do it in crisis or do you do it so that you don't, so that you're not in crisis, um, so that you can guide your steps? And all of us are having to face that right now. Wow. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, you're naming it. I mean, this is coming out of the pandemic, especially, and, and really it's the question, okay, now what, God? You know, what do you have in mind for us now? And are we willing to shift, to change, 
and to even uh, let go of what was in order to step into the new thing God has in mind for us. I mean, that's, that's what I hear you saying. And, and I, I just wonder about uh, for you as a leader, uh, again, our topic is, is expanding imagination and, and you have an imagination, certainly. I mean, I can hear it. How do you guide the congregation or invite them into imagination as, as they're, you know, they're in this parking lot, right? And, and you have a, an idea of how this is all going to continue to grow. And, and by grow, I mean, not with numbers necessarily, but in reach of the community and impact in the community. But how do you bring people along uh, in expanding imagination with you? So this is the gift of preaching, right? Is every Sunday we get the opportunity to explore prophetic imagination, right? That's a a title of a book by Walter Brueggemann. And prophetic imagination is what it takes to take a scripture that's been read for thousands of years and continue to make it new and vibrant for your people, right? Including us lectionary preachers who every three years were like, this again. And you pulled (laughs) the file and you're like, what did I say last time? And how much of this is still relevant? So preachers are naturally imaginative, You have to imagine how ancient things are modern and current and contemporary. And frankly, for those of us who've been in ministry for a while, that's like, that's what we do. That's our gift. That you want us to reimagine something old into something new? Sign us up. We can do that for you. What we run into is the the crunch between imagination and tradition, right? This is what we imagine, yes, but this is how we've always done it. So, the gift of having an opportunity every Sunday to say, imagine this with me. Um, (laughs) Who are we? Who is God in God's infiniteness? Now, imagine who God imagines you to be. God already knows who you are. And there is a capacity that we have that we haven't realized yet. We are bound by lots of things. We're bound by oppression. We're bound by capitalism. We're bound by finite resources. And God is unbound. But if we, God's people, the children of God, the siblings with Christ, are really meant to live into that identity and really theologically claim that for ourselves, then we have bound ourselves if we don't permit that imagination. So, what we've been able to do is say, this parking lot is sacred. We have claimed an identity of being houseless Mm. because we are. And this lot is (laughs) sacred ground because we see, and and this is prior to the pandemic, I will say we have been online uh, since March of 2020. We, We were seeing every Sunday people who wanted to come to church there on purpose and then people who accidentally stumbled by and were like, hey, that music is amazing. And they were like, wait, that looks like free food. Wait, that lady is talking about Jesus. And those things don't align. Uh, being a street preacher was not a goal of mine necessarily. But when you can do it in a way where you're clear in what you believe, I know I can say things. I have clear theological positions that could be controversial, that could be in wild disagreement with other people's theological positions. But you know what? I've only been heckled a few times, uh, and it's no more so than in a standard pew setting. So, our identity as being houseless meant that we were prepared to minister for and with our houseless neighbors. We got a better understanding of what it meant to be a neighbor because we were bad ones. Uh, We're outside making noise on a Sunday morning. We are seeing with our own eyes the needs of people that are going unmet in the city. 
We see how people don't have a place to sleep. They don't have food to eat. They don't have shoes on their feet. And so we did what we could to minister to the people who needed it most. And that was that was really remarkable uh, to be able to claim that as an identity. And so when we claim, like when people would say, when are you going to build a church? Our answer was, we'll build a church when we can build housing for those who need it. God doesn't live in a place. And you can go back and read that great passage in that God's interaction with Solomon, right? In first Kings. That's like, I don't need a place. Like I didn't ask for a temple of oak and cedar. You want that. I don't want that. Fine, go ahead and build it. <laughs> so we don't need a church. What we need is what our neighborhood needs. And our neighborhood needs more resources for our houseless neighbors. Right now we don't even know where to where to send them. We don't even know how to be good neighbors. We don't know who to call. And frankly, we need more affordable housing. Downtown doesn't have it at all. So until we can help to create that, we will remain houseless. That's beautiful. And there's just, there's so, uh, I just want to like take what you just said, and this is old school, but like write it on a sticky note and put it on my desk here because it is, that is just so profound and just so right, Mandy, that, you know, we say this all the time, but you're embodying it. Like the church is not a building. The church is people and the church is there as a a means of grace for the neighborhood. And to hear how you're embodying that is just really, really beautiful and and inspiring. And so I guess as we, as we kind of wrap up, I feel like we could talk for a long time. So I'm trying to be very thoughtful. And and what I ask you, I'm wondering about, let's say I come back to LA in 10 years. I don't know. I hopefully before then, but 10 years from now, and and I come to LA first, what am I going to see? What am I going to experience? Okay. So I, we're, <laughs> that's a good question. It is my hope based on the work we've been able to do this past year, we really devoted ourselves to answering the question, what is the true value of this land? Wise, smart money people would say, sell it sell it, cash it in, go buy a little plot of land somewhere else, pat yourselves on the head and carry on. But we're like, no, we know how that story goes. We've done that a bunch of times. And we're still here with this empty plot of land. Like it didn't do anything to grow the ministry. This site has value. It has so much value in its presence. So we've been in the process of developing a development plan. And we're in conversation now. I'm like bound by, you know, confidentiality around it. But our hope is that when you come back in 10 years, our hope is that by the Olympics in 2028, on the corner of Flower and Olympic, you will find a building that houses um, people who have transitioned out of homelessness, who have supportive services on site. You will find a place that has workforce housing, which is for people with jobs, just jobs, not fancy jobs, just jobs. You'll find a place where market rate people live. And in this ecosystem that's stratified intentionally, the church has done its work to teach people in the building how to live well together. And that's our job. That's what churches are awesome at. We're really, really good at teaching people how to be compassionate and hospitable. And if we can do it in a building to teach people how to live well together, then that bodes well for the church's longevity. So our hope is that we can really live into the idea that Jesus broke it down and was like, all right, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. So I hope we will be doing that in a way that's physically manifested by 2028. Oh, may it be so. May it be so, Mandy. Thank you so much. And I, I, I think we're going to get one more question. And you're in LA, you're in downtown. It is a celebrity culture. And so what is that like? I think is the 
the first question. Then also, it there is this real distinction. There are so many fans there and in Hollywood, in LA, uh, people that are uh, following in, in certain ways, but not in the same way that we would necessarily distinguish a disciple who's following, right? So how do you see how I did, did that? Yeah. How, do you, how do you distinguish between fan and follower? How do you invite people into, into being a disciple of Jesus in that context? I think you just answered the question perfectly. And I'm in the process of doing a doctor of ministry because this work we're doing with development is so weird and groundbreaking that like, frankly, I needed support. And that's the real question. So, I mean, this may, this may be somewhat controversial, but I'll say it anyway. Behind us, maybe a block or so away, is a massive, beautiful old theater. And that's where Hillsong was meeting. And in the early days of my ministry at LA First, I encouraged us to go visit other churches to see what was working. Like, who's thriving? Who's doing what? What does it look like? What are they doing? What are they not doing? What's missing? Which is the opposite of asset-based community development, where you look at a community and see, like, what's here? What's here? What can we really give that we naturally have? So as much as I'm interested in that, I'm also interested in what wasn't happening in other churches. And I think it's exactly that. It was the difference between fan and follower. People would go to Hillsong, and I don't I don't mean to paint with a broad brush. It's not about that. But my my observation was when you go to Hillsong, and I went and loved it. I there was nothing offensive about it, you know, like I came away feeling good about myself. The music was terrific. The spectacle was remarkable. The production value was high. The sermon was inspiring, you know, and we all critique it in our own heads. But I was like, you know what, to be honest, that was a good church service. It's different than anything I've experienced as a lifelong United Methodist, but I understand the appeal. The difference is what that fosters. Fandom fosters a manipulation of your schedule right? When you're a fan of something, I'm a massive Braves baseball fan. When you're a fan of baseball, you organize your time around their schedule. You make sure it's clear. You organize time to go. You do what you can to keep up with what's happening. But that doesn't change my life. It changes my time, but it doesn't change my life. Discipleship is meant to be a reflection of who we are as people. And being a follower is what discipleship means. And so I've been trying to break down discipleship, which is a church word, to people who are listening to me talk on a street corner, who are not church people. And if I just blabble on about a bunch of like church jargon, it's not going to get me very far. And it's frankly not going to help anyone else. But that's ultimately the distinction is, are we teaching you ways to change your life meaningfully? To rely on God's grace and goodness, to rely on the idea that you are a beloved child of God and start from that place, reorganizing your life so that you understand what has the most value, which is love, loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, loving yourself. All of those things are challenging. The last one, most of all. So I I think that's our great challenge now as churches is to figure out like, well, what we were doing this wonderful model that we inherited that shaped and formed us. It's not to say it didn't have value, but it's got a shift. So we taught people how to be schedule organizers, how to program. You're at church every time the doors are open. But that didn't shift our internal being the way becoming a disciple of Christ does. So I think that's our like greatest challenge now. Preach, Mandy, preach. This is good. There's this great quote, which I should probably have led with, that it's one of those things that when you hear it, it's so convicting. It's not original. I'm sure you've heard it before, but it's an old Quaker proverb or something. I don't know. I don't know what you would call it. Parable where a man is asked, are you a Christian? 
And he's, his reply is, don't ask me, ask my neighbor. Mm. I was yeah. so convicted by that. So convicted. Cause I thought what would happen if my neighbor could not say that of me, you know? So it touches on this like hypocritical idea of like, do we practice what we preach? Are we the people we say we are and, and believe that we are? It's very, it was very convicting. I mean, you're just such the, the combination of vision, visionary and preacher, I mean, dynamic, imaginative preacher and theologian. And really, I'm just inspired by, I'm so glad people are going to get to hear from you because I think that there will be much fruit from this. So just very, very grateful for that. So keep up the good work. I imagine it's very hard though, at times to be the parking lot preacher, you know, and, and so just know you're in our thoughts and and certainly prayers and gratitude for doing what you're doing. It's awesome. Well, thank you, Mandy. Have a great rest of the day and weekend. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.